Welcome to Tea Time with Mary. I'm your host, Mary Jolkowski. I'm a former bikini fitness model turned self-love advocate. And this is the podcast that'll inspire you to love yourself. Hey friends, before we begin, I just wanted to let you know that this podcast episode is sponsored by my favorite books. Not literally, but I did create a book list for you with all of my favorite books for self-love and body image and self-confidence and just overall self-healing and growth. I am a huge personal growth person. And to be honest with you, a lot of the things that I talk about come from the books that I've read. I'm a big reader and I always tell my little sister, readers are leaders. And I love audiobooks. I love book books. I love Kindle. I love all the forms of books. Just give me all the goods. So I decided to create a book list for you with my top 25 favorite books. And I actually add to this list. So there's probably going to be more than 25 books on it. But I have narrowed it down to top 25 books that you need to read to start the self-love journey. I'm not saying you have to read all the books right now, but you should have this list handy dandy for when you're getting a book on Amazon or shopping in your Audible or whatever. So I've created this book list and you can get it at maryscupoftea.com slash books. And I will also put it in the show notes. And let me know how you like these recommendations by screenshotting what you're reading and tagging me in your Instagram stories. I always love seeing you use my recommendations. It just makes my whole day because we're like a little community. So anyways, maryscupoftea.com slash books. Go get it. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Mary's Cup of Tea, the podcast. Today, I am here with Dr. Kristen Neff, who has been a dream guest for literally years before I even had a podcast. I have been studying her work and following her, and she's been a big part of my self-love journey. So I'm so honored to welcome Dr. Kristen. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Thank you for taking the time to do this. I want to read your bio in case people are unfamiliar, but you are a pioneer in the field of self-compassion research, creating a scale to measure the construct over 15 years ago. So this is like a measurement tool, right? From my understanding. Yes. And we'll get more into that. And in addition to writing numerous academic articles and book chapters on the topic, she's the author of the book, Self-Compassion, The Proven Power of Being Kind to Yourself, which I have right here annotated. (laughs) And that was released by William Morrow. Dr. Kristen received her doctorate from UC Berkeley studying moral development. She then did two years of postdoctoral study at the University of Denver studying self-concept development. And during Dr. Kristen's last year of graduate school, she became interested in Buddhism and has been practicing meditation ever since. While doing her postdoctoral work, she decided to conduct research on self-compassion, which is a central construct in Buddhist psychology and one that had not been examined empirically until you. And in conjunction with her colleague, Dr. Chris Germer, she has developed a training program called Mindful Self-Compassion, which is taught by thousands of teachers worldwide. They co-authored the Mindful Self-Compassion workbook, as well as Teaching the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, a guide for professionals, both published by Guilford. She is also co-founder and board president of Nonprofit Center for Mindfulness Self-Compassion. And now you are currently an associate professor at, of educational psychology at the University of Texas, Austin. That's right. That's a lot. You're a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> you are a big deal. Um, this might be a really different place to start. Um, But I want to ask you about a hilarious anecdote that you shared in your book, Self-Compassion, about the Spanish writing instructor. Oh, yeah. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, yeah. So sadly, it's a true story. Um, So what had happened is um, I I was with a group of friends and we were going to a writing stables and an equestrian stables. Um, and we went there and there was this old little Spanish writing instructor. He was, I don't know, like seventies or eighties. And he looked at me and, you know, I was younger then. And I guess he liked the way I looked and he said, oh, you are very beautiful. And I was like, oh, thank you. You know, in front of my friends, I said, thank you. (laughs) And the next thing he said was, don't ever shave your mustache. Okay. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. And so I like to talk about that story is, is talk about self-esteem so fickle, like it's there for you one moment and it's like gone the next. It only takes a little sentence to totally decimate our self-esteem. 
Um, yeah. yeah, that it's funny. The way you told it is exactly how I read it in my head. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it's funny. It's true. This is that thing. <laughs> I could well, make up something like that. <laughs> I mean, I love that you included it because it's very illustrative of the drawbacks of self-compassion. Like you said, how, how fickle or, and self-esteem, yeah. Or sorry, yeah. self-esteem, yeah. yes. Mm-hmm. And how self-compassion, on the other hand, is much more different because it doesn't rely on what other people say or don't say about you. Um, could you speak more into that? Yeah, well, so self-compassion, right? So the word talks, compassion means suffering, you know? So it means how do you relate to yourself when you're struggling or you're suffering or you're having a hard time? Um, can you treat yourself with the same kindness, care, and support you'd naturally sow to someone else you cared about? Um, and so a moment like that, when someone says, please don't ever shave your mustache, you know, your self-esteem isn't there. You can't, you don't feel good about yourself. You feel shame or embarrassed, but that's precisely when you can be self-compassionate. Mm-hmm. You, know, you can say, wow, just like you would for a friend. Oh, I'm so sorry. That hurts. Or, you know, what? don't worry. It's not true. Or, you know, don't take it personally or <laughs> all those things we say to make, you know, yeah. make those we care about feel good in that moment. Um, and so that's what you can do. And what I did do with myself, um, you know, it was just kind of, kind and accepting and you know and, you know it was, it was also really funny and I knew I could get a good story out of it as well <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah and so you know so self-esteem is like a fair weather friend it deserts mm-hmm. us precisely when we need it most which is when we're feeling badly about ourselves or rejected or something like that happens where self-compassion is, is like a really stable friend it's, you know it's there for us in the good times we care about ourselves when, when things are going well um, but it's especially a way of really supporting ourselves and being there for ourselves when things go. You know, and this could be something with your self-esteem, like when you're feeling badly about yourself, or it could be something like when the pandemic hits, you know, and something yeah. that you maybe don't blame yourself for at all, or it has nothing to do with you personally, but it's still really difficult. It's still really a struggle. And so self-compassion is there to help us in difficult moments like this. Yeah, I love the way um, you explain it. I believe in your TED Talk where you said self-compassion is there for you during the good times and especially the bad times. That's when it steps in when everything else fails because like you explain an entire chapter of your book that self-esteem and we focus so much on self-esteem in the past few decades and research and academia and parenting um, and in mindset work and motivational speeches, right? It's all about Mm. self-esteem. Yeah. And it kind of has been failing us. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, it's definitely, it's better to like yourself than to hate yourself for sure. I mean, in terms of, you know, when people hate themselves, they get depressed, they, they might even think about suicide, right? So it's not healthy to hate yourself by any means. Um, but is it really so important that we judge ourselves positively, that we think we're great, that we think we're beautiful mm-hmm. or wonderful or amazing? You know, because the truth is we're perfect human beings. We've got strengths. We have weaknesses. You know, everyone's like that. And so we don't want to make our happiness rest on judging ourselves positively. Because again, if we're, if we're honest, some things we do well, some things we don't do so well. We've got, you know, everyone has good and bad qualities. And so self-compassion allows us to embrace that imperfect humanity. You know, we don't need to get everything right. We don't need to like ourselves. You know, hopefully we don't hate ourselves. And the thing is self-compassion keeps us from hating ourselves. You know, and it allows us to appreciate our good qualities just like we would to a good friend. But it also allows ourselves to accept, and you know, and see ourselves clearly. Uh, and that's really important that we see ourselves clearly so that we don't like become narcissistic or that we don't like, you know, pretend there's not a problem when there is maybe something we need to, to work on. Um, and also that just so we can, you know, really be okay with who we are and be authentic, which is just so important for happiness. Yeah. And on that segue, I want to bring up the dun, 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 the A word that we're all so scared of is average uh-huh right uh-huh. and that's the, yeah. the first part of your book is that we're all so scared of being average because yeah. so much of our life is focused on trying to be above average yeah um, the beginning of going to school and playing sports and everything else in our life um why are we so afraid of being average why is that has been so bad for us 
Uh, well, I think society tells us we need to be above average, right? You know, we think about like a C, which is supposed to be an average grade. First of all, people don't even give Cs because it's actually below average because we can't handle being average, right? Yeah. You know, to succeed in school, to, to succeed in life, people tell us we have to be above average. Um, but it really sets up a really unhealthy dynamic. Well, first of all, because it's logically impossible for us all to be above average at the same time. Yeah. So like our society and our self-esteem is predicated on a logical impossibility. And that, that's the problem. First of all, it sets us up to like see ourselves unclearly. Like, um, you know, we always have to feel like we're, we're above average in everything. And by the way, it's not just in, in America. We maybe do it more than some other cultures, but like in mm-hmm. Japan, we're being modest is really valued. People think they're more modest than average, right? Mm-hmm. So whatever our culture values, we have this tendency to want to see that we're above average in that in that value, just so that we can, you know, like ourselves and be okay with ourselves. Um, we also get rewarded for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, we might like try to put other people down subtly because it makes us feel better in comparison, which creates social disconnection, which doesn't make us happy when we feel disconnected from others. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, I kind of think that, you know, again, we don't want to hate ourselves, absolutely. But I just think the whole self-esteem game is like not worth playing. Much better yeah. just be kind and supportive to ourselves, you know, which will also make us feel worthy. But we aren't worthy because we're perfect or above average. We're worthy just because we're a flawed human being. And all human beings are intrinsically worthy of care and kindness and love. Yeah. Where we are. For sure. And I think there's a lot of just like you said, social norms um, that are problematic and perpetuate this notion. Mm-hmm. Like um, if your girlfriend, you know, just found out her ex is dating a new girl and that's like heartbreaking. Mm-hmm. The first thing you say is like, oh, you're much prettier than her. Yes. Right. Uh-huh. Like things yeah. like that. It's always yeah. about comparing. And it's also about in our Western society, it's the looks that are so valued. So yes. we want to be for women, especially that's actually the number one area in which women base their self-esteem is how attractive they think they are. Yeah. You know, and, and and women think they're less attractive than men, which of course is not reality, but it's just because A, the standards of beauty are so much higher for women than they are for men. Um, and also kind of, yeah, just so much of our success in life is related to how attractive people think we are. Um, you know, it, it's sad, but it's true. And that I think that ties into the history of power and equality. And women were like, things that we, the men owned that look good. They were like decorations, you know, there's, there's some of that. Um, yeah. So it has a pretty ugly history. I think that whole, that whole dynamic. Um, and you know, but you, at some point you can just say, Hey, who, you know, who cares really? So you know, right. I, I, there are things I, I'm, I know I'm not very good at and I can admit mm-hmm. it and I'm okay with that. I don't have to be good at everything. You yeah. Know, I have strengths and I nurture my strengths and I make my living off of them. Um, and it's really at this point, it's like, I don't, I don't need to be good at everything. That's okay. Nope. You know, it, it's, it's fully okay to be an imperfect human being. And, you know, we, I think we try to be the best we can because we want to be healthy and we want to be happy and we want to, you know, do what we can to, to, to contribute to this world. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean, and also, you know, this kind of like, there's our personality and then there's our inner self, right? So our personality is like some of the habits of behavior we have, which, you know, you know, it's like you, you do enough therapy. Like I've done a lot of therapy and I'm, I'm done with therapy at this point. I'm good enough. You know, mm-hmm. I don't need to, I don't need to improve anymore, or deal with any old patterns of behavior. It's good enough. So I'm not even focusing on that anymore. Mm-hmm. I'm really focusing on doing things like writing books and trying to, you know, again, make a contribution. It's so funny you say that my first session with my therapist, I started at the beginning of the pandemic because I'm like, I've been procrastinating this so long. And now with it being virtual, I'm like, okay, this is the time. So I sit down and the first thing my therapist Nina asked me is, why are you coming to therapy and why now? And I said something like, well, I feel like everybody's doing it and it's something I should probably do. And she's like, so let me get this straight. I now know everything about you, that you're making therapy another thing that you have to perform at, another (laughs) thing that you have to check off and do to be better. Um, And that pursuit of being better. And her, like many therapists, um, said that, like, I'm not here to, like, fix you because you are broken, right? Um, So I love that of being, like, good enough. And I think this day and age with podcasts, 
and motivational YouTube stuff and self-help, just the self-help industry booming, I think it has a lot of people feeling like they always need to be like that. Yes. Yeah. And don't get me wrong. I mean, therapy, therapy can be very useful, especially oh, yeah. like old wounds that need tending, you know, um, especially like early family stuff. It's, it's It can really be good to, to work that out and to think about it and the kind of, you know, parts of ourselves we kind of split off and don't own and we, we aren't integrated. So therapy can really help with that. So, I, you know, I believe in therapy. But up to a point, you know, and at some at some point, it's like, okay, I function well enough in the world, you know, do I do I need to be better? No, actually, I don't need to be better. Yeah, yeah, we're exactly good enough as we are right now. Um, and if we want to get better, this is something that you talk about is this motivational power of self-compassion and how we can't yeah. change what we don't yet accept. Um, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So actually the number one block to self-compassion, if you look at the research, is that people think it'll uh, undermine their motivation. They think if they're kind to themselves, they'll they'll stop trying, they'll become lazy, they won't, you know, they won't be go-getters, they won't reach their goals, they won't change. Um, And the exact opposite is true, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, self-criticism, it actually does work as a motivator. I'd be lying if I said it doesn't work at all. A lot of people have like gotten through law school or med school <laughs> for being really hard on themselves, but yeah. it just has all these negative unintended consequences that mm-hmm. aren't helpful. So like it makes you afraid of failure, you know, because you work so hard and, you know, even if you know that you fail, that you're going to beat yourself up, which means you're going to get performance anxiety. It's actually going to make it a little harder for you to achieve or can lead things like procrastination, right? It can just make you anxious and stress. And at least to things like, you know, high blood pressure and it can lead to heart problems, you know? Mm-hmm. So the consequences are, can be pretty serious. Um, and so self-compassion, it's not a matter, I mean, so although, it, yes, it's true that we are okay as we are. On the other hand, if we care about ourselves, just like a compassionate parent cares about their child, yeah. we don't want to change behaviors that are making us unhappy. Mm-hmm. If it's harming us, if it's harmful to us or those we care about, then we're going to want to change, not, not because we aren't okay as we are. It's like a parent, you know, with their, their child maybe gets poor grades. A child, mm-hmm. a parent doesn't stop loving their kid because of that. But they yeah. still want to help their kid improve yeah. because they care. And so that's really the motivation of self-compassion. It comes from a place of caring for ourselves as opposed to a place of feeling inadequate. Um, and and we, we know from the research that it's actually more effective. It works mm-hmm. better. Um, we, we, we respond to failure more productively, where we get over failure more quickly. We are more willing to try again. Or, you know, we're able to take risks. We're less afraid. We have less anxiety. And so it's actually a more effective motivator in the long run. And the difference is big, right? Like it's much more powerful. Yeah, well, you know, it depends on the setting, what you mean by big, right? You mm-hmm. know, so I... But it it is there and it's pretty consistent. And it also appears to be a more effective motivator than self-esteem, like boosting people's self-esteem doesn't yeah. actually do that much for their motivation. Um, yeah. I find that um, in situations, like especially public speaking, which has been like a recent endeavor, something that's a fear for all of us, including me, I still feel like I need to throw up and pee and cry at the same time before any, any big speech or anything like that. Um, and when somebody says, don't be nervous, you'll do fine. I'm like, well, thanks. Like, that's so not helpful. Yeah. But one thing my boyfriend started saying to me was, it's okay to be nervous. Yeah. It means you care. Um, and that like acceptance that yeah. we can also give to ourselves, like, it's okay to be nervous, mm-hmm. it, you know, and validating that feeling, which brings me to the three components of self-compassion that you talk about. And that is the mindfulness component, I believe. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So there's three components of self-compassion and they're really all necessary to make it a stable, healthy state. So if it was just about self-kindness and self-love, it could actually devolve into things that aren't that healthy. Things like, you know, narcissists love themselves, (laughs) you know, that's not necessarily good if they don't see themselves clearly. Well, someone could argue, do they really deep down love themselves? But nonetheless, it can be like a self-focused selfishness. Um, It could also be like self-pity, self-pity where it's like, woe is me, poor me. That's not healthy for anyone. That's Mm -hmm. not healthy for you or anyone else. So there really needs to be three elements there. The first actually is mindfulness. 
So mindfulness means um, being aware of what's happening, what's occurring. Mm -hmm. And in the case of self-compassion, which is aimed at suffering, being aware that, you know, pain is here, basically. Um, And also accepting that pain is here without fighting out, without fighting it, without, you know, saying this shouldn't be here and like getting really frustrated Mm -hmm. because things aren't the way we want them to be. Uh, That doesn't help. And so basically, if we just avoid our pain and we just like, you know, buck up, like, you know, like British, you know, just carry on, um, <laughs> then we actually can't give ourselves compassion, right? We aren't, we aren't even aware that we're struggling, we're suppressing it. Or if we do the opposite and like we dive into it, like that's what self-pity is like, woe is me, this is, you know, we catastrophize, this is the end of the world. Then that's actually, we don't have the clarity to give ourselves compassion either. Mm-hmm. So, so part of what compassion is, if you really think of, and this is the state we're more used to giving to others. And so part of what we need to do to give ourselves self-compassion is perspective take. We have to kind of step outside of ourselves and our drama and say, oh, you're really struggling right now. You're having a hard time. You know, is there anything I can do to help? And so that kind of third person perspective, the space needed to take that perspective is actually given to us by mindfulness from our awareness. Mm -hmm. So it's it's really necessary. And then the second thing that's really so important um, is remembering our common humanity, our shared humanity right? So even though the word self is in self-compassion, it kind of just means inward as opposed to outward. Mm-hmm. We actually aren't thinking about ourselves as like individuals to self-compassion. We're thinking about ourselves as, as like human beings, like all of the human beings. Right? We, we remember that everyone's imperfect. Everyone mm-hmm. struggles. There's no one alive that lives a perfect life or who's perfect in every way. You know, so we kind of normalize our struggle and we normalize our imperfection. And, and the reason that's so important is, well, first of all, again, if we don't, then, then we are full of self-pity. Woe is me. And we yeah. feel all alone and isolated. It makes things a lot worse because not only are we hurting, we feel all alone and we feel abnormal. It's like, you yeah. know, this shouldn't be happening. Well, whoever said it shouldn't be happening, you know, it's like things like this happen. I mean, even yeah. like with this pandemic, it doesn't happen a lot, but they, they've happened before. Yeah. They do happen. I mean, this is kind of part of life. And so pretending that it's, or feeling that it's abnormal, or it shouldn't be happening. Again, it just makes it worse than it needs to be. And also it makes us feel disconnected in our experience, you know, and, and as human beings, if we feel disconnected and isolated from others, we feel quite scared because we're social animals, right? Mm-hmm. So when we remember that, well, this is normal, this is part of life, everyone struggles, everyone makes mistakes, everyone, you know, has things mm-hmm. like this happen. Um, and by the way, that doesn't mean that all suffering is the same, yeah. you know. So for instance, you know, if, if you're if you're um if you're a person of color and you live in a racist society, your your situation is not the same as someone of privilege. So yeah. we need to acknowledge that our suffering is different and some people do suffer more than others. Absolutely. Having said that, we are never just totally alone. It's never just us. There's always other people like us. Um, and also, we all kind of suffer in, you know, we all suffer in different ways, but yeah. everyone suffers. You know, everyone has relationship conflicts and health issues and psychological health issues and experiences, you know, tragedies. And this is part of life. So we kind of have to hold that both those things together. Not all suffering is the same, but everyone suffers. And again, the reason that's so important is when we remember our, our interconnectedness with others, it's actually a type of wisdom. Mm-hmm. You know, when we aren't so self-focused, but remember, hey, we're part of this larger system. You know, we're part of something much bigger than ourselves. Um, and then we can kind of start to see, oh, I see. That's how we can start to have forgiveness or understanding of how we are, what's happened to us when we see the bigger picture and have that wisdom. You know, compassion in many ways is a type of wisdom. Yeah. You know, that's why we don't just blame and judge people. It's all their fault. We see, oh, I see the factors. This is because of their upbringing or this happened or this cultural reason. And that allows us to have more understanding and also mm-hmm. therefore more compassion. So that, that aspect's really important. Um, and, and it really is what differentiates self-compassion from self-pity in a very important way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I always like to say like when you're um, like criticizing yourself or pitying yourself or you're, you're just being very overly self-critical we call it you call it in your book ruminating yeah just like over yeah. and over again on those yeah. negative thought patterns yeah. um the the question I always ask is like okay well when you're doing that who are you always thinking about exactly you're yeah. always thinking about yourself whereas actually when you have self-compassion you don't really think about yourself that much you're more so like 
everybody's human, common humanity. I'm going to be kind to others because everybody goes through this. Um, And you can really feel when somebody is self-compassionate because they're just compassionate. They direct that inwards and outwards. Right. Yeah. And it's actually a less self-focused state. And so again, it is confusing. Like I know some of my Buddhist friends say, but isn't the self the problem? Yeah. (laughs) Shame and self-criticism creates a sense of separate self, you know? Yeah. So again, you don't even have to use the word if you don't want. It's just directing this, this state of mind that sees everyone together in a loving way, making sure you include yourself in that circle. Because if you separate yourself, that's being self-focused. Yeah. And I really love the three components. Um, it was a game changer for me, the self-kindness, the mindfulness, um, and the common humanity. And I think the one that is more underestimated or at least not talked about enough is that common humanity aspect, especially. And that was what was like, aha for me right away. Yeah, no, it it shifts things. It shifts things in a way that's important. If you just say, be kind to yourself. I mean, what what does that mean? What does that look like? Maybe it's not, that's not so healthy necessarily. I'm, I'm curious just from like a geeky academic nerd perspective, how did you Mm -hmm. land on these three components of self-compassion? Yeah, well, so um, I actually started by looking at compassion for others because it's so much more. I mean, a little bit had been written about self-compassion. I certainly didn't come up with the idea. I actually learned about it um, from studying the works of Thich Nhat Hanh and learning Buddhist meditation. And and also, if you look at like some of these ideas of unconditional self-acceptance, like Carl Rogers talked about, the ideas were out there, but no one had really like precisely defined it in a way that it could be measured. Yeah. And so I started with compassion for others. And I was influenced by people like uh, Jack Cornfield, who talks about the, the difference between pity and compassion, you know, and I, I really realized, okay, we need this interconnectedness part of this, you know, and again, because I was, I was, in, I was inspired by Buddhism, you, know, you start to see that the problems with seeing yourself as separate. Yeah. And in a way, without common humanity, we do see ourselves as separate, which isn't healthy. Mm-hmm. So I, a lot of it is I, I read books on compassion. I read Buddhist books. I read kind of like Western philosophical books. And then I realized that these three components needed to be there. And then I just included that um, with self-compassion. I also have a compassion for others scale now that also has the same three components. I think it's the same for self and others, even though yeah. it's often not talked about that way. But you know what I found in, in teaching self-compassion is, as you say, like, you know, a lot of things you do, you just bring in the three components, you do it intentionally and you do all three and they all really work together in a mm-hmm. way to make a stable state of mind that may not be there if you don't have the three spelled out explicitly. Yeah. Wow. So is your, the class that you teach, um, is it psychology, educational psychology, or how to, is it a separate self-compassion class at university uh, and then your work separately as well? Yeah. So in, in, in my work as a, as a professor, I, I teach a course in, in a self-mindfulness and compassion. Mm-hmm. So, I, so I look at mindfulness, self-compassion and compassion for others. Um, and I'm in, the, in educational psychology, but it's really kind of more broad, broad psychology more broadly. And it, it draws mm-hmm. students from all over campus. Um, it's, it's a big class. It's well, we keep on upping the enrollment. It's 200 now and, you know, it fills with wait lists. So it's obviously really sought after. Um, but I also do a lot of teaching just in terms of workshops. So I teach the Mindful Self-Compassion Program mm-hmm. and I often teach like short versions of it and I, I give talks. And so I would say really the last 10 years has been primarily devoted to figuring out how to teach people to be more self-compassionate. I know it's good. You know, I think we can show by the research that it's good. You know, yeah. and I still I still like to create scales and measures and facilitate the research process. But from my point of view, the most important thing is how do we help people develop this skill? Mm-hmm. So, so for instance, I just published a paper. We, we developed a, a training program for healthcare workers, mm. um, which is just six hours once a week for six weeks no meditation. They don't have time. It's like all stuff they can do on the job. Um, And we found it really helped it, you know, it increased their self-compassion and compassion for others, reduced burnout, reduced stress, reduced depression. It really made a big difference in their lives. Yeah. Not to mention the ripple effect of like communicating with patients. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And and that's important on staff. And absolutely. There's actually research that shows that the more self-compassionate you are, more other people become more self-compassionate is by just by being around you. 
That's so beautiful. That is so beautiful. I mean, I don't know much about the medical field, but I'm thinking as you're speaking, I'm like, Grey's Anatomy needs you. (laughs) (laughs) These people in Grey's Anatomy need to take some class because they're so hard on themselves. Yeah. um, The surgical interns. But I know I'm kind of working backwards, but how did you like come to the Buddhist meditation work and what in your life, I feel like we all have some sort of personal connection to the work that we do. What brought you to this? Yeah, well, so I basically, I was just, it was my last year of graduate school, um, and I was just in a bad place, right? I had just gotten a, a divorce, and it was a very messy divorce, and I was feeling a lot of shame, and I was under a lot of stress, you know, basically about when I get a job after devoting seven years of my life to a PhD, you know, absolutely no guarantees, Um and so because I, I, I got my PhD at Berkeley, you know, meditation is a big thing in Berkeley. It's kind of an old hippie town. Um, mm-hmm. And there was a, a group, um, a group that practiced in the tradition of Thich Nhat Hanh, a, a meditation group, like literally down the street from me. So I just started wow. to learn meditation. I, I started to deal with my stress. And then I quickly learned about self-compassion. It was talked about there. And I just saw, you know, what a big difference it made. So for me, you know, the development of, you might say my, my spiritual practice of, um, you know, kind of understanding the, hmm, the suffering that's caused by identifying with the separate self that you know, got from Buddhism and then practice of compassion and self-compassion and also mindfulness meditation was all kind of really cohered for me um, in my personal life. And it, it's, it's really primarily a personal practice, um, but I also study it and I teach it because I know it's so helpful. Yeah, it it truly is. Um, I was having like a weekend down in the dumps for sure. And your book was what made me grounded. Because like you said, it's just so easy to be like, this is only happening to me and what is wrong with me and I need to stop and all this stuff. And upon reading your book, I hear, well, because I've listened to enough of your talks to hear your voice in my head. Um, And it it does make all the difference. Is there a certain exercise that you find has been the most uh, helpful, especially for people that aren't familiar with meditating um, Mm -hmm. and understand mindfulness, but don't really know how to apply it. Is there something that's like a quick coherence kind of um, practice that you'd recommend? Yeah. So, you know, actually what the research shows is that although meditation is a reliable way to increase self-compassion, even just mindfulness meditation, you know, if you take a mindfulness-based stress reduction course, which is the most common mindfulness program, you will gain in self-compassion. That's one of its benefits. Mm. Um, But you don't need to meditate. Equally effective is just doing things in your daily life, which is great because not everyone wants to meditate or, you know, likes to do it or has time to do it. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's actually two practices that are really the most portable practices that we that we often teach in the Mindful Self-Compassion Program. A very simple practice is just using actually touch. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there's a physiological underpinning to self-compassion. So, so self, when we criticize ourselves, it's like we're in the fight or flight mode. We see, we, we mm-hmm. see our, our problem in ourselves. So we attack ourselves because we're frightened and you know, we try to keep ourselves safe by beating ourselves up, thinking it'll you know, stop the behavior and make us safe. And when we do that, our, our sympathetic nervous system gets activated and we get riled up. And so we can actually use touch, like putting your hands on your heart or your face. And what it does is physiologically, it makes us feel cared for because as mammals, you know, think about the first two years of life. There's no language. The primary way parents communicate care to infants is through touch. Mm-hmm. If you just touch yourself in kind of a warm, kind way, it can immediately calm down your physiology and help make you feel cared for. And then you can just use the three components of self-compassion, almost like steps. We call it the self-compassion break. Mm-hmm. You know, so the first step is you become mindful of the fact that you're having, you're struggling. You, know, you just become aware of it. You don't fight it, but you don't suppress it. It's like, well, this is, this is really hard right now. Yeah. Um, you remind yourself of common humanity. You know, I'm not alone. I, I'm not the only one who feels this way. It's normal to feel this way. And then you you intentionally bring in kindness. And a very easy way to do that is just think, you know, well, what would I say to someone I cared about, you know, a child or a partner or a good friend? What would I say if they were going through this situation? And then it comes naturally. Oh, I know what I would say. I know what tone of voice I would use. You know, I'm really used to that. And then you just kind of do this U-turn and you try saying that to yourself. 
And, and so you can do that, you know, any time in the day when you're struggling. It's, it's really effective. So simple, but yet so powerful. Yes, exactly. You know, and that's the thing about it. It's like, it's not rocket science, um, yeah. but it's so underutilized. It's like, we've got the superpower in our back pocket. We don't even know we have, but right. if you, you give yourself permission to be kind to yourself and it does help. I mean, so many people are afraid it's going to make me full of self-pity or I'm going to be selfish or I'm going to be unmotivated. The research shows without a doubt, it's not true. It's actually just the opposite. You're, you're less selfish. You're more mm-hmm. motivated. You have less, you're less self-focused. You know, you've got better relationships. And then so once you realize, okay, nothing terrible is going to happen, then you can, okay, well, maybe I'll try it out. And then you can see for yourself what happens. It's really effective and powerful, as you say. Yeah, and, and super um, grounding. Mm-hmm. I think that's the word I always come back to, especially yeah. like you mentioned, uh, pandemic time. And yes. uh, so many things in the media, um, everybody's on freak out, talk about fight or flight mode. Yes, and. Yes. The reality is, as much as people don't like to hear this, but pandemics do happen. And in history, like mapping out for centuries and millennia, literally, we're due for one. (laughs) It happens more often than it doesn't. Um, And so, you know, talking to yourself in that way that this this happens and that this is a normal reaction to to be upset and frustrated. So I'd also talk about, lately I've been talking about um, kind of both fierce and tender self-compassion. Uh, mm-hmm. And we need both. So tender self-compassion is like, like we might be too, you know, accord to friend, just kind of like loving, feeling, you know. Mm-hmm. So if you look at the three components of self-compassion, which is kindness, um, common humanity, and mindfulness, it feels like loving, connected presence. You know, mm-hmm. when we're being tender with ourselves and we're accepting ourselves and we're kind of soothing and comforting ourselves feels like loving connected presence is kind of a soft gentle energy but also sometimes to care for ourselves and alleviate our suffering we need to like get angry we need yeah. to say no we need to, you know it's like the political yeah. situation you know we need to get angry and we need to go out there and vote and we need maybe to protest and like all the racial injustice we can't just say you know oh that's so sad like, yeah that's not because that's not what we need we need to get up and do something to make a change all this systemic injustice and you know all, all the things in our in our society that's not okay. It would not be self compassionate if we didn't get up and, and do something and take action. Yeah. That's that's what I call that fierce self compassion. You know, mm-hmm. sometimes we need to fiercely protect ourselves or protect our society or you know stand up for justice. Um, and, and again, that means sometimes including getting angry. Uh, yeah. So uh, we really need both, and we need wisdom to say what we need. But at some level, we always need both. So if if you if you get angry, but there's no like loving, connected presence, mm-hmm. then you're just going to be destructive, and you can like, be violent. You're going to demonize other people, and that's not going to help. You know. So we need to integrate. I call it like the yin and the yang of self compassion. You know, because it's always a balance. They always go together. Yeah. We need both energies. We need fierceness. And tenderness. I mean, if, but so if, if you're just too too much about the you know the kindness and the being with, we might become complacent, and that's not good for anyone. And if we're too like motivated to make a change or do things, then we might you know then we might might be like perfectionistic, or we might get angry and destructive. That's not good. Huh. So we really need this balance between the fierce and the tender to be healthy. Um, and I, I'm actually writing a book right now called Fierce Self Compassion, and the same just at women. Because women are socialized that they shouldn't be angry, that they shouldn't be fierce, that they should just be tender and nurturing. And, and it really messes us up. And it also is what's enabled patriarchy. You know, women, okay, we'll take care of the kids. And, you know, that's why we don't rise to the top in our professions. And, you know, we're always expected to do things for others. We don't feel entitled to meet our own needs. You know, w- women actually have lower levels of self-compassion than men do because mm-hmm. of this idea that, well, we shouldn't meet our own needs. We should always put others first. And so yeah. this book is like really written as an antidote to that. Um, yeah. I think a book could also, you know, men also need it. So I'm not, I'm not a man, so I probably shouldn't write it, but a book <laughs> says, it's okay to be tender. Right. It's okay to be soft. Like there's, you know, they're also harmed by gender socialization that says men can't be tender, right. women can't be fierce. We all need both to be healthy, yeah. whole human beings. And so that's really kind of where I'm focusing lately in my work. Yeah. I love that. And it's like these energies have been gendered, um, yes. but really they're just energy. And they're just energies. Yeah. Regardless of our genitalia, we do need both. Like you said, yes. or exactly. what we should be our gender. 
Um, As you were talking at the beginning about, um, you know, the yin and the yang and the fierce self-compassion and the loving tender one, I was my, my first like image that pops into my head is like a mama bear. Yes. (laughs) <laughs> right. I need that's to- what I that's the, actually I don't know if you heard me say that, but that's the metaphor I use. So there's mama, which is like the tender, and then yeah. there's fierce mama bear. And I love that metaphor because it's also a feminine energy. Like we even though we associate the young with the masculine, you know, if the mama bear is a feminine energy. Oh, yeah. Nothing more ferocious than a mother protecting her children. And you know, women have access to that anger and that energy. Or, you know, the Hindu goddess Kali, you know, is often a metaphor for this intense fierceness. Um, or that the kind of warrior energy that you know women have access to absolutely you know make it comes out a little different for every human being depending on their background and where they are in their culture and so it's not going to look the same but everyone has access to it so I yeah I I talk about my fierce inner mama bear (laughs) yeah and I I did I think I got that from your blog post and now it's like a permanent image um and like it's important to remember that although the patriarchy existed for a while especially in uh, Western culture, it also, in the grand scheme of things, hasn't existed for that long because we still say Mother Earth, who has storms and chaos yeah. and hurricanes and power and all that stuff. We yeah. still have different goddesses, like in Greek god mythology and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, we still have so many powerful uh, female energies and how they're symbolized across cultures that actually pride that and encourage that in like feminine and uh, female energy. Um, so it's, it's necessary, but my thing with the mama bear, I'm thinking about it. And then you go on to talk about how in our culture right now, it's totally fine if you're like protective over your kids, but what about when it comes to you? Yeah. Yeah. People don't like angry women. You know, there's a lot of research that shows that if a man gets angry, you know, they respect them and they're more likely to believe them and be persuaded by him. He's seen as passionate. A woman gets angry and they think she's crazy and they're less likely to believe her because she's, she's not acting like a woman. So there must be something wrong with her and she's less persuasive, you know, yeah. and people don't also like confident women. It's, it's really sad, but it's women and men is we do it unconsciously. We don't like confident women because we think if she's confident, then she's not nurturing and therefore she's unlikable. And it's like, you know, we just got to get beyond all this stuff. It's not helping anyone. I'm like, done with it. I'm so done with it. And I have other women are as well because it's like, uh-uh, and oh, I'm not yeah. going to play this game anymore. <laughs> oh, I am so with you. I read a study that it actually both women and men don't like confident or angry women. Even women, if you say. It's even, it's even stronger for women. The yeah. effect is even stronger for women. Actually, and It's all unconscious. We don't know we're doing no. it. And so we've got these stereotypes. So she must be a bitch if she's confident, it's, you know, and it's operating outside of our awareness. There's also something that happens for women. It's slightly ego defensive, you know, because some of that threatens me. So a lot of things are going into it, but the important things is happening outside of our awareness. And a lot of it's put in us by like, you know, watching films and movies and cartoons. Yeah. So we need to be aware of it and we need to like consciously choose not to buy into it and to do something different and ask, but I have this reaction if this person was a man. And if not, then rethink your reaction. You know, yeah. literally what that's how my best friend just coached me two days ago. Cause I wanted to send an email asking someone for something. I'm like, I feel so bad asking. And she's like, okay, well, would your boyfriend feel really bad asking? And I'm like, actually, no, my boyfriend feels like he could just email anybody anytime with anything without yeah. a second thought. Um, exactly. And yeah, we're, we're that much more, we're socialized to be this way, I think. Yeah, um, because we want people to like us, you know, and, and that's the thing self-compassion can give you is, you know, we don't need other people to like us. It, it doesn't yeah. mean you're going to be mean or inconsiderate of others. But um, one of the things self-compassion does is it makes sure, again, back, going back to self-esteem, mm-hmm. your sense of self-worth isn't so contingent on mm-hmm. social approval or people liking you because yeah. you actually give yourself the approval that we often try to get from others. And what this does is it enables us to say no. It enables us to ask for things that we need. It also enables us to give us what we need if other people can't give it to us. You yeah. know, it just really frees us up to, um, yeah, to stand up for ourselves and to take better care of ourselves and, and, and to be healthier and happier. There's an exercise in your book where you asked, you were talking about self-esteem and then 
how self-worth ties into that and how if we base if we put all our eggs in one basket basically then yeah. of course our self-esteem is going to be just as volatile as those yeah. results yeah. Um, in our life and there was an exercise which I literally pencil to paper I have to pencil it in for myself but you asked to list um, all the areas of your life where you get self-esteem from and I was only able to come up with six and then I did a little check because the follow-up question was like um are these dependent on like other people or yourself is a question similar to that. And I looked at this and only two out of the six things I wrote down were actually like very intrinsic, which was my writing and my speaking abilities, because it didn't, it didn't matter what the results were. As long as I was writing a page a day, I'm happy. I feel confident. But the other four things on that list were about social media or Mm -hmm. about how I look we're about, and I think this is just so common for so many of us Um, and self-compassion really allows you to take your eggs out of that freaking basket. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And it's, it's okay to keep them in there because obviously we need to like function in society, but not so heavily weighted. And that's what I love about self-compassion the most is that it's balanced. It's practical. It's nothing like I think you're revolutionary and your work is revolutionary, but the concept of itself, if we really step into it and and root ourselves into it, it's not groundbreaking revolutionary. Like this is some new novel thing. Yeah. It, it just makes sense. It makes sense. It makes exactly. Sense. Yeah. Yeah. And um, people, people have talked about it, you know, for a, for a long time throughout history, maybe just using yeah. different terms. Um, you know, I also think that, well, I think there's a lot of reasons we don't do it. I think a lot of these fears stand in the way. Um, I think, like, for instance, if you look at parents, they used to try to control their kids yeah. by criticizing them. You know, and in a way, if you look at society wanting to control people or wanting them to buy certain things so they feel good mm-hmm. enough, you know, then society's not going to give those us those messages if it wants to control us or if it wants us to buy certain things. Oh, so in yeah. a way, it is kind of a revolutionary act to choose to be self-compassionate and say, sure. yeah. yeah, it's like a big fuck you. <laughs> Basically, yeah. 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 yeah, like I like myself. What are you going to do? I'm still yeah. going to. Yeah. And again, it doesn't mean you're going to be mean to others because yeah. if, if I'm mean to you, then that affects me. That's not self-compassionate because we're going to have a bad relationship and you're going to be unhappy and then my world's going to be unhappy and that's going to be mm-hmm. harmful to me, you know? And, yeah. and so it's like, we can't really say that we're going to be kind to ourselves and mean to others. That's not good either. But it does mean that we have to include ourselves because if we don't, then it's, again, it's unbalanced and unstable. Yeah. This is a, a new question that I've been asking, but just as a wrap up, because I think it's so fun and I'm going to put you on the spot. So <laughs> be prepared, but don't be scared. Um, if you could put any message on a big billboard to everybody, I'd say especially women, because most of our listeners are women, what what would that message say just to summarize everything? I think the simplest way to, to boil it down uh, is this idea of just being a good supportive friend to yourself. You know, are you being a good supportive friend to yourself? Yeah. And if the answer is no, well, then, you know, try it out. <laughs> because yeah. uh, remember sometimes friends protect us and they stand up for us they maybe f- even fight for us they, so yeah. it can take a lot of different forms what a friend looks sometimes they sue this sometimes they say hey you got it you got it yeah that's not good do something different you know i love you stop it yeah <laughs> you know? i'll text him um, <laughs> yeah it, it, but just you know because because women are just we're so used to we've we're we're, we're the compassion experts we're so used to how to, you know, learning how to be a good friend, how to be supportive, how to protect other people, how to meet other people's needs. And so we just need to remember and give ourselves permission to turn it inward and really be boiled down to something as simple as that. And then once we do that, um, it all kind of starts falling into place. I love that. Amen to that. Um, we really need to extend that love and caring and compassion to ourselves as much as we do to others. Yes. Um, and like we said, it's like, so many benefits and it's like this ripple effect of screw you (laughs) you know (laughs) and it helps so many people and that's what that's what I love the most um you know I've always lived by when in doubt focus out I think I would put that on a billboard Mm -hmm. um and so to me that's about when you hold the door for somebody else like you instantly feel good about yourself I love the loving kindness meditation where you just think of 
of someone, a stranger, and just wish them happiness. And in turn, you begin liking yourself too. And really, yeah, well, I mean, we, we have to be careful with that as women, though, because that is kind of like that message of, I mean, I, it's a good message, yeah. but it's dangerous because it reinforces the idea that I shouldn't be self focused. Mm, that's true too. You know, and that I should, you know, that my, my worth comes from being good to others. And if I want to be happy, help others. It's like, it kind of subtly gives the message that your happiness is dependent on mm-hmm. helping others and you don't really deserve to focus on yourself. That's so, I true. Don't know, I, might, I, might, I hope you don't mind, but I'm not no, sure. No, not go board. I totally I say, see that. You know, yeah. I would say focus in and out as opposed to focus out. Yep. Okay. And, I love and that. Stop, and stop making the split between in and out. You know, yep. we're, all, we're all interconnected. Mm, that's powerful. That is really powerful. And I totally see that now. Um, and maybe that's like the, my recent, I'm having a little shift as so many people are, but that's my recent thing. It's that it's always been about other people and stuff. And that message that we're selfish if we're not focused on other people. Yeah, it's actually it's really toxic. damaging. It's a really damaging message and it doesn't help others. It really doesn't. Yeah. You know, the, people who are more self-compassionate make better relationship partners. You'll have more to give to others. Mm. If you focus on meeting your own needs. It's not either or, it's yes yeah. and. You like know? the cliche of uh, filling your cup so much that it overflows to others or putting your oxygen mask on first so that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. exactly. I love that. Okay, better billboard message coming. <laughs> coming. I hope you don't mind calling. me saying that. No, not at all. This is what, this is why you're here is because this is what thought leaders do is they shake it up and they're like, hey, um, maybe there's a different way that could be a little bit more helpful. Um, especially to women and what we're experiencing right now and fighting the patriarchy and fighting systemic racism and yes. so many things in the world as well. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for your time. Um, if there's, is there anything else you want our listeners to know before we farewell? Nope. No. Just, uh, yeah. Well, it's nice talking to you and appreciate the conversation. You and too, Dr. Kristen. You too. And so. Thank right. you so much. Well. I truly appreciate it. Um, and thanks everybody for listening. I'll see you next week on Mary's Cup of Tea, the podcast. Bye everyone. Okay. Bye-bye.